Fit and Theater of the Words presents The Reprehensibles, The Fight for Earth's Future, Episode 13, The Attack in the Armory. The food production plants for each tea were always located in the general vicinity of the habitats. Any food shortages inside the habitats could easily be covered by diverting the lines to those with greater benefits. The T25 plant was 5 kilometers from Rose Garden and less than 100 meters from the habitat enclosure. It was a geodesic dome in design, glowing light red, almost magenta in color, very large but dwarfed by the habitat. Surrounding the plant at its base was a silver rim. This area contained the raw foods warehouse and also provided a security field around the plant itself. Gibbs had men stationed on top of the habitats and adjacent to the modules to the south. Straco, Maxwell, and Abair, dressed in the green and white suits of the production workers, had entered the plant through the power line tunnels around 10 o'clock. The tunnel, guarded by militiamen from the outside, was easy to traverse, with the only problem being the disruption of the security devices. Once that was accomplished, they opened the door to the plant and wasted no time in assuming their respective positions to await the intruders. Straco sat atop a group of empty shelves in the rear of the rim warehouse. In front of him was a long conveyor which brought the raw materials upward to the food preparation area. He leaned back on the shelves and prepared to speak to his comrades. Under his skin, outside his larynx, a tiny transmitter broadcasting on a scrambled frequency had been placed so he could communicate with the others. In his ears was a pinpoint receiver that picked up any signals being sent by his friends. All channels were controlled by his belt buckle on a small computer with limited functioning power. Gimme Maxwell, ordered Straco as the channel opened up immediately. Jeff, report. Maxwell was stationed behind a position in front of the food preparation area. To his right, oversized conduits connected to a highly reflective vat over 12 meters high. Behind the vat, workers scurried along the railing of the monitor center, joining the computer to coordinate the process. Jeff, come on buddy, wake up. Sorry Mike, getting tired. I could use some Supron myself, Straco confessed, but we've got to stay awake. I'll give you odds, they don't even show tonight. Never mind the odds, Scott. We're here until daybreak, and we'll continue to assume they're coming. I don't want to be caught off guard. Right, said Maxwell. Check back in a half an hour. Channel's out, said Straco. He leaned his head back on the support, staring ahead at the movers next to the conveyor as it entered the front wall. All around the warehouse, automatic truck scoopers retrieved the food sacks, slashed them open, and finally dumped the raw food into the moving conveyor divisions. Straco closed his eyes to rest for a few moments. It had been an extremely long day for all of them and he wondered why Gibbs had even had them on duty. Of course, he could not have foreseen the food riot and the implications. However, the colonel did not remain in his mind for long. His thoughts drifted back to Maria and the words he had spoken to her in the mover. Perhaps it was his closeness to death, the risking of his life which finally barred his feelings for her to the surface. Even alone in the warehouse, he was still somewhat embarrassed for what he had said. But he really did care about her and once expressed, that would not leave him. As he let his mind float, he fought to stay awake. As an IGU agent, he had been trained time and time again to stay awake under stress, but they never told him anything about feelings. Straco, shouted Abier. All channels open, ordered Straco as he snapped out of his daze. Scott, what is it? Tunnel Mike. The power lines tunnel, something behind the door. Orange light around the crack, bright orange light. 
anyone? Asked Maxwell, who stood next to the petition. I can't see anything. I'm getting closer for a better scan. No, Scott. Don't expose your position, yelled Stracco. Noises, definitely someone behind those doors. Said Abar as he slinked along the power lines. He whisked a locator. Noises, definitely someone behind those doors. Said Abar as he slinked along the power lines. A locator. He whispered as a jagged hole formed in the door. Where are you, Scrat? Get back. Don't play around here, shouted Straco. Don't worry. Said Abar as he saw someone coming through the door. He turned and tried to run back to his original position. Several men in red suits with a black and gold zigzag down the front of their uniforms poured into the tunnel area. Taking Abia for a production worker, they aimed their locators at him, firing a shrilling sound across the room. Abia was hit instantly and moved at high speed against the Zambian and left for dead. Scott, Scott, said the beleaguered Straco. Computer, full gain. Heartbeat level. In their area, they could hear the heart contractions growing slower and finally ceasing altogether. Dead, Mike," said Maxwell in a low voice, as he didn't hold his position. "We will maintain our positions, Jeff." "How can you be so cold about it? Scotty's dead." Mike Stracco was just doing his job. "Here they come, Captain," said Maxwell. "Hold your post," repeated Stracco. "Yes, sir." Ten men in red suits ran from the movers. The lead man cutting down all production workers. In a well-rehearsed formation, they stationed themselves at various positions along the rail fence. The signal was given and they fired their locators into the computer circuits. All movement in the back, along the conveyor, within the trucks, stopped. The smoke rose from the rear panels and Maxwell was, by this time, screaming to Stracco. They're all dead and the computer shot out. Hold your post, Jeff. They're blowing the conveyors into weird shapes. Straco could see chunks of the upper conveyor and other debris falling down into the warehouse. It's only a matter of time until they entered the warehouse itself. Mike, they're looking down here. They're going to fire. That's impossible. This room has no significance, said Straco. I'm getting out of here. Pulling himself onto a ladder shaft which led to the floor. Jeff, don't be a fool. Get back, called Straco. You have to keep a high position. Maxwell reached the floor and crawled on his belly toward the conduit pipes. He reached the pipes and climbed high into the mass of metal. If that bat goes down, you'll drown. I'm not on the floor, Captain, he said as he climbed upward. There it goes. They're firing at the bat. Walked and twisted all out of shape, cracked, split on the side. Proto food dripping. Oh no, they're aiming at me. Where are you? The pipes. He said as the bat let loose with the locators. Maxwell began to scream fiercely and then he was silent. <laughs> Jeff! Jeff! called Straco. Jeff, answer me! He repeated, but the channel had gone blank. In the monitoring area, the sabotage team entered the movers and headed for the warehouse. Straco kept a cold knot in the pit of his stomach, fearing that he was the only one left. Computer, high gain, he ordered, as Maxwell's heart, pumping steadily, sounded in his ears. Jeff, can you hear me? Now the decision was upon him as never before. He could hold his position or save his friend. Abear had died suddenly, and there had been no choice for him. But Maxwell's heartbeat blasted into his ears as he clung on to life. Draco climbed to the floor like a monkey in a cage and sprinted for the tunnel under the movers. He just made it in time when he heard the movers opening above the tunnel, but he kept running toward his friend. 
He was far below the food preparations area as he skidded to a stop under a closed hatchway. Opening it, he looked up the long tube inside which led to the food preparation area so far above him. He leaped into the air, catching the rungs of a metal ladder in his hands. Pulling himself apart, he started his long climb. In the conduit area, Maxwell had been severely injured. The metal and Zambium had spun around the different varying shapes, moving like a knife into his shoulder. He was bleeding slowly and literally fused with the pipes at the shoulder. Ahead, the crack in the vat had grown larger due to the stress of the proto-food. Another movement could jar it open, sending millions of liters of thick proto-food across the floor and into the open tube where Mike Stracco was climbing. Stracco had made a fortunate decision to leave the warehouse because the intruders were in formation once again. They spent considerable time leveling the racks, the trucks, the conveyor, and the very shelves that he had just been perched upon. They hurried around the rest of the rim and destroyed the rest of the warehouse efficiently. Their job completed, they headed to the power lines area where they first had entered the plant. As Stracco pulled himself up the ladder, the lights grew dim and shut off completely. He froze until the auxiliary lights flashed on a few moments later. Passing an adjacent horizontal tube, he gazed upward. He still had at least 15 meters to go to rescue his friend. It was the incessant heartbeat in his ears that kept him going. He could not help but think of the slowing heartbeat of Scotty Abair. Abir's body lay along the floor of the room as the ten men made their way through the jagged hole in the door. An intense, almost blinding light followed a few seconds later and then faded like a spent match. The room was darkened and still. But things were happening in the food preparation area. The crack in the vat had deepened and the reflective walls could no longer sustain the tremendous weight of the proto-food. It ripped apart with a thundering gush as the sides of the silver vat collapsed and the staggering areas of proto-food moved forward across the room. Stracco, upon hearing the shaking, climbed higher. The area overhead was dark and globs of the mix fell through the tube. He knew what had happened. Frantically, with Maxwell's heartbeat, Bounding through his ears, he clawed his way down the ladder, moving four or five rungs at a time as the mass was pushed forward. The air rushed by him as he saw the goop advancing at him. Without thinking, and in a single emotion, he swung through the adjacent tube and fought to push the hatch shut as the proto-food rushed inside. Desperately, he knocked it tight enough to lock it in place, and he fell into a blotch of the messy food with the sound of Maxwell's heart to assure him he was not the only one alive. Jeff! Jeff! He whispered through short breaths. Can you hear me? Heart kept beating, but there was no answer. Stracco got to his feet. Slipping in the proto-food, he headed down the tube. He ducked his head as he hurried toward the closed hatch at the far end. As he got to the hatch and put his hands on the handle, he opened it only a few centimeters, then a few more, until he could be certain that the tube was unobstructed. There was no trace of proto-food in this tube. He hurried up the ladder toward the light above. When he stuck his head out the top of the tunnel, he saw the blown away portion where Maxwell had first been stationed. He crawled up the warped platform floor and saw his friend Scanner still stuck in the petition. He grabbed it from the wall and put it in his own uniform. Jeff! Jeff! His words echoed around the room as he surveyed the situation. The whole room did not seem real. The floor was covered with food and uncertain depths and air bubbling to the surface. Above him, the workers were strewn across the platform, next to the burnt-out computers. He turned from the smoldering panels and saw his friend molded into the twisted pipes along the lake of proto-food. Oh, Jeff! 
he whispered as his mouth felt parched. Straco could not risk trying to wade through the proto-food and he looked up. The sturdy Zambian straps that had once surrounded the conduits had been sliced by the locator fire and now hung just a few meters out of his reach, above the proto-food. Straco did not stand around contemplating the ramifications of his actions. He ran across the platform, forgetting the tons of sticky slime below, and he leaped into the air. It felt like minutes until he felt the clutches of the hanging strap and sweeping momentum carried him over the conduits to the far side of the room. He leaped over the stretched hunks of metal and through the foul smell of the burnt Zambia. Maxwell was directly ahead of him now, and he crawled high above the room to get his friend. His friend was alive, but luckily he was unconscious. Straco was perplexed at the twisted wreck in front of him. He had never seen anything like it, and the only solution, providing Maxwell did not bleed to death in the meantime, was to use his blaster on the Zambian. He adjusted the blaster to a pinpoint precision and brought it down to the Zambian. Firing it, he began to shear away through the fibers on both sides of Maxwell's shoulder, dislodging a large chunk of Zambian. Now he was free to get Maxwell out of the plant but he dared not pull the slab from his shoulder as the bleeding would begin again. Straco! said a voice from above on the platform. Colonel Gibbs and close to 50 militiamen had arrived on the scene with astounded looks on their faces at the damage done to the plant. Colonel, over here! And send some medical personnel! yelled Straco. The remaining proto-food was turned down the latitude like water going down the bathtub drain. Gibbs deployed his men along the slippery residue in the conduits. They gave him fresh blood and immediate medical attention for his wounds. And by the time they were carrying him below, Gibbs had reached the conduit area. Abair is dead, Mike, he told Straco. I know that, said Straco as he frowned and squinted. How did you get in here, Colonel? When the power went, the computers gave us the go-ahead. But Mike, we saw no sign of intruders. They were here, Colonel said Straco softly. But how do they get inside? That's something you boys are going to have to figure out, said Straco as he handed Gibbs the scanners. Abair mentioned something about an orange light. Mike, said Gibbs as he grabbed Straco's arms. Something big as a foot, obviously. Threatening Earth and our whole way of life. Straco was silent, too tired to take any more stress, and he merely raised his brows. You'll get a full briefing tomorrow afternoon. Now come on, you need to get some sleep. He said as they arose and led Straco through the wreckage and back to the armory of T-25. Just before two o'clock on the following afternoon, Colonel Gibbs stood in the overview room with Major Badger. They casually glanced at the map, engaging in small talk as Straco, fresh from nine hours of uninterrupted sleep, came through the doors. Although rested, he was still quite perturbed about what had happened the night before at the production plant. Captain Straco reporting his audit, sir, he said, saluting Gibbs. Since when are you saluting me, chided Gibbs. Heaven forbid the day that we get so formal at IGU. You said there'd be a briefing, and I have arrived for that briefing, he said succinctly. Mike, you have to forget about last night, said Badger, sensing his distress. Twenty-one people gone right in front of my eyes. One of them, my close friend, Scotty Abair. And now you want me to forget about it, Major. He knew the risk, said Gibbs. But why? For what? We could have gone right in there and blasted those clowns before they could do anything. We couldn't, Mike. They were missing or I knew we were on to them. All hell would break loose. All hell did break loose, David, he said to Gibbs. 
I just talked to Jeff. He can't move his left arms. The nerve cells are destroyed. New cells are being grown right now, Captain. Sit down. Ordered Gibbs in a loud voice. Straco, his lips constricted in anger, reluctantly followed the colonel's orders and sat at the table. We just talked to the chairman on the screen, said Badger. What? The chairman of the Earth Quadrants, the most powerful man on Earth, calling here, right now. And do you know why he called to talk to me personally? No, I don't, said Straco. Because they just finished the results of your scans last night. They know who's behind this all. They have proof. Who? You'll learn that when we're briefed, said Gibbs. Briefed? Yes, Captain, you and I are going to leave for two days in Earth City. There'll be an emergency meeting with all IGU chiefs and quadrant commanders from around the planet. Straco was astounded by what Gibbs told him. His mood seemed to snap to the other extreme. You will remain here until the air mover picks you up at 5 o'clock in the morning after next. Well, Mike, are you up for it? asked Gibbs. Who, me? he asked, smiling broadly. I wasn't doing anything anyways, Colonel, was I? Join us next week for another exciting episode of The Reprehensibles, The Fight for Earth's Future by Robert P. Fitton, presented by Fitton Theatre of the Words. <laughs>